You're listening to a C3 Victory podcast. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au. Thanks, guys. Not sure if you've heard that song. It comes from Mosaic Church. Uh, Erwin McManus is the lead pastor of... Thanks, guys. Is the lead pastor of I Am Really Powerful. Thanks, Chris. You must think I need it this morning. Hadn't been gone that long, mate. He's a, he leads the church planted Mosaic. Very creative church. He's speaking at, uh, speaking at Presence next year. Um, I read his book on the plane going to Mackay a bit over a week ago called The Barbarian Way. You should read it. He said the problem with the church today is it's become too domesticated. We've become too civilized. The church that Jesus, he said, Jesus is a foreigner in a religion that bears his name. It is right. It is right. It's become so institutionalized, the most important thing to Christians today is how our sins are dealt with, not how we can deal with the world to get them out of sin. Christianity started as a revolution, not as an institution. You ought to read that book, because something's missing in today's church. Mm. I think sometimes every time we walk into a building we don't own and we're able to worship there, we ought to remind ourselves, we're not here for bricks and mortar and structure and institutional things, we're here for a revolution. I think the reason why our nation is in the state that it's in is because the church is in the state that it's in. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation. Where in the world does righteousness come from? Righteous people. And when righteous people aren't living righteously, the nation is not exalted. Hmm, just saying, just saying. Should think about that a little bit. Read the book. It uh, made my plane journey very interesting. Well, good morning, church. Hey, I just want to say to you, I want to thank you for your understanding and love for Janet during her sabbatical. Um, She's here with me this morning, but can I say to you, she is here as part of your family and my wife, not here as in her role as senior pastor. So I, I thank you for respecting that because she's been running hard with me in ministry long before we even got here for decades. We started our marriage together. We got married on Friday and went back to university on Monday uh, for ministry and things like that. And, uh, and so what she needs right now is just to experience rest and the love and the grace of God for herself in new ways. So just keep praying for her, respect her space. She wanted to be here um, and wanted to be here with you, but just respect that and keep loving her. Treat her as family, not as one of the employees, if you would, please. And Because uh, that's necessary for all of us to have that, that Shabbat or that Sabbath or that sabbatical as times of rest with God. So thanks for doing that. Um, hey, I want to give you some exciting news this morning. We're, we're launching prayer ministry here at Central. Listen, it's time for it to ramp up again. It, it's taken a lull, like a lot of things. This morning is death to the lull, I'm telling you. That's what it's about today. So you better just get ready to get unlulled. 
this morning. So we're going to ramp it up. It's one of the greatest weapons that we have, and it's one of the best ways to commune with God. Prayer isn't just rattling off a list to God. Prayer is sometimes sitting and listening to God and let Him talk to you. And it's one of the best ways to commune, and it's one of the best weapons, but I'm pleased to announce that it's going to be led by Bronwyn McQuillan. Stand up, Bronnie. Let everybody know who you are. Good. She's got a great ministry in prayer. Her whole job is actually um, leading prayer for all the employees and and families of compassion across the nation, um, which is a a necessary thing, but she's going to lead that here. And uh, Bronnie has a great ministry in prayer, and with her anointing in this area, we're going to see things break open and accelerate. Um, What did you just say? Oh, I thought you said, hell yeah. (laughs) Don't say that, Jez. I'm telling you, the hearing is just getting worse. I know you didn't say that. Anyway, <laughs> my son, when he was a teenager, he used to say, hell good. And I'd go, how can you say that together? Anyway, but listen, this ministry is going to, it's going to begin right here in this auditorium as pre-service prayer at 9 a.m. beginning in a fortnight's time. So when you walk in here, you will walk into a cocoon of prayer and power. And, and if you want to be a part of that, that will be awesome. It, it will be the kind of prayer that's prophetic. We get on our front foot. Uh, it causes the, the gates to open for all of us to have an encounter with God. And man, I'll tell you, uh, Nate and Rachel are excited about it because it's aggressive and it sets things up. It's faith-filled. It's expectant. We want you to be here. None of this passive stuff. None of this contemplative stuff when you're in here, it's going to focus on what takes place in our meetings on the day. We're not praying for the world out there. We're not praying for our our missionaries over there. We will do that in other meetings. We are praying for God to move right here. I was just standing there this morning going, how desperate are we really for God to move in us? I was thinking back to the old revivalist, John Knox you know, who just cried from the depths of his heart, God, give me Scotland or I die. I just wonder how desperate we are for God. You know, last week we, uh, we started looking at passion for God and how it's an issue of the heart. And, and, and it, it was put so well that the responsibility to stir up that within us is our responsibility a thousand sermons can't do this for you. My last prayer before I walked on the stage this morning is, Holy Spirit, do what I can't do. I can't move you. I can't make you choose. I can't make you hungry. But I tell you what, I can present fire. And then you choose. But, but no one else is responsible for you to fan the fire into flame inside you but you. Don't sit and look at others and go, well, if they, well, if they... Look in the mirror and go, where's the fire? Paul said to Timothy, here's young Timothy, church is getting a bit tough, life is on the edge, he's getting ulcers, he says, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake, son, for heaven's sake, settle down, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but he said, you need to stir up the gift, the flame that's been put in you, Timothy. Paul's in prison, he's about to get executed, and he's saying, I can't do it for you, man. You now got to stand on your own two feet and do this, Timothy. And I, I, I kind of want to affirm that this morning with the exhortation Solomon wrote thousands of years ago. Thousands of years before Timothy. Solomon said this key verse in Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else. And when God says above all else, that's pretty important. For it determines the course of your life. 
The state of your heart will determine the state of your life. And if it's on fire, your life will be on fire. If it's lukewarm, you will be insipid. And I believe last week, today, and the weeks to come is a watershed moment for us as a church, for us as individuals. And before I say more about that, I want us to do something. I want us to stand and pray. The kind of prayer I'm talking about. The kind of prayer that opens up our heart to the Holy Spirit and says, come Holy Spirit and do whatever you want to do. Say whatever you want to say this morning and in the days to come. Would you just do that for yourself right now? Just pray, just open up your own heart right now before the living God and pray with the passion, all the passion you have for God and for His glory and for His presence right now and for His Spirit to flood your thoughts and your heart and your mind. Come on, speak it out, church. There's no no need in being quiet in this. We're desperate for a move of God. We're desperate for you to move, Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost, you are fire and wind. And I pray, God, on my heart and on my life that you would bring your fire afresh. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, over every life in here, over my life, not just this day, every day and the days to come. Holy Ghost, a fresh baptism of fire in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Holy God. Holy God. Holy God. Pray that ancient cry came from the mouth of Moses out of a desperation for you. God, we would see your face. We want to see your glory. God, we need to get to the place where we're fed up with glory-less days. Mediocre faith. Lukewarmness in our own thinking. So Holy Spirit, come. Invade this moment. We just, God, we want our hearts and our minds to be ground that is just wide open and fertile for your seed because we know it brings faith, unlocks doors, brings breakthrough in our hearts and our minds right now. All distraction, just bound, just gone. Even the voice of the enemy that would distract, confuse, upset, divert, that voice is silenced right now. We command silence in that powerful name that shakes the kingdom of darkness. The heavens are open over this place and no demon in hell can prevent the work that God wants to do here right now. We declare an open heaven over our hearts, over our minds, our lives, our homes, our workplace, everything we are and everything we do. Let there be glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. Hey, we've, uh, you know, we've had an amazing season of transformation. By the way, I'm just, for the people that I have spoken to and will speak to about bringing prophetic into our services, 
and you're wondering, how would we do that in a theater? This is why this stays with me all the time now. Now, in the middle of a sermon, I ain't going to look at it. But not long ago, it was in my pocket, it buzzed and went off, and Todd had given me a prophetic picture he'd seen through the service. So if you're one of those people that we know and we say, bring the prophetic word, if you're not sure, I can't come down the front and give it, that's what it's there for. You send me that message and I'll look over it, pray over it, and see if God wants to loose it in that. That's why it's there. It's not because I'm checking any scores or anything like that. Hey, we've had an amazing season of transformation, so much so that we've been rewired in our, in our thinking, in our values. And you know, it's been both necessary and healthy. You know that. Very healthy. Our faith is no longer a performance-based faith. Our identity isn't found in our activity. It comes before our activity. We don't earn God's love through effort and achievement. God cannot love you any more tomorrow than He loved you yesterday and today. And we don't earn it. We don't get any more of it by how much we do. Neither is His favor given to you because you've got a role, a title, some kind of ministry. We have His favor on us because we're His kids. We're adopted by Him. We're seated in heavenly places, the Bible tells us. And I, I want to tell you, it's been a great journey of the heart that's affected us powerfully over the last four years. And I've loved doing that journey with you. However, something's been bothering me for a while. And I'm sad i got to do this on a long weekend. And so many people are gone. So encourage them to hear the podcast. But the ball has got to keep rolling. And something's been bothering me for a while. I've been a little bit unsettled. You might have picked that up. And I'm not sure what it was until recently. And while the journey has been positive for the most part, listen to me now, in this journey, there's the possibility of slipping. And that's what's been bothering me. Let me explain what I mean by that, what I'm kind of picking up. You know, the revelation and the experience of grace. We've all kind of known grace as a theology. But to know grace as an experience is totally different. And we've received that grace and that revelation, that experience been so fresh. And it should empower us to live incredible for God. But instead, I see so many people living for self now out of grace. Oh, it's grace whatever, however. It's almost like grace equals me. Man, that bothers me. Because slipping takes place when grace is used as a license for freedom, to indulge in self. However, that takes shape. Paul told the churches at Galatia chapter 5 verse 1, you know, it's for freedom that Christ set you free. Don't let anybody ever put law and a bondage on you again. Don't ever let that happen to you. You are not under that. But did you know, just 12 verses later in verse 13, he says this, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use, it actually should probably say, do not abuse your freedom to indulge the sinful nature rather than serving one another in love. Now, you know what? We see this happening over and over again. People get a revelation of the grace of God. It sets them free from law and from the works of religion. And the weight and the burden of performing gets lifted off. And then you realize, God loves me unconditionally. Oh, how great is this? And then all of a sudden, you don't know how to handle your newfound freedom. So you think it means I can do whatever. Or I don't have to do whatever. I'm just now free kind of thing. And start living loosely. You know, I remember talking to the principal of the Bible college in Sydney. And you know what he said? He said, one of the biggest problems we have, Keith, is kids come in from all the cities around the state and the nation. And they're not used to the freedom 
that we preach and we give our people. And all of a sudden, with this newfound freedom in their identity in Christ, what we find is they then just go wild. They go loose. It's as if all of a sudden, all laws are gone and chains are off and anything goes. And man, they said, we get students who all of a sudden are out getting drunk and losing their license because they think, well, I'm under grace. Grace doesn't do that. Listen, grace isn't freedom to do the wrong thing. It's the power of God to do right. Grace isn't, hey, I can be me, whatever that means. No, grace is me becoming like Him. But all of a sudden, in this new kind of season, you know, people are going, hey. And it's just like, oh, well, you know, because we're not under law, we can come and go as we please, do whatever. No, grace should make you more passionate for things of God. It's, it's, you know, when God gave you freedom, He took a risk because He risked that you would take the choice to not walk well with Him or even like Him. Let me put it this way, put it up on the screen. The risk of grace is that God gives us the freedom to choose. The scandal of grace is when we make the wrong choice. And I think that's what's bothering me a little bit. I see too many people making wrong choices. And it's not just sin, it's just choice of nothing for God. Everything is negotiable now. And I'm going, oh God, I almost want to go back to preaching law. But that's not the answer. Law never made anybody passionate, it just made them afraid. Interesting. And then we talk about presence. Oh, presence, so wonderful. Presence, so wonderful. We don't have to perform. It's such a great thing. And all of a sudden, because we don't have to perform, neither do we move or respond or pursue. I want to tell you, we should be impassioned by presence in ways that can't be contained or hidden. I don't think a worship leader should ever have to stand and say, raise your hands. Are you alive out there? I I mean, you know, it's pretty obvious when you meet a dead person that they're not moving. Now, I'm not trying to be morbid here, but if you've ever had to identify somebody who's passed away, you know they're not there. You're looking at a shell. You know that. But all of a sudden, if they sat up on the table and go, let's dance. You know you just encountered life in a crazy kind of way. Well, Christians are the kind of people that stand up out of death and say, let's dance. But all of a sudden, people become so familiar with presence, they're not moved. It's like, oh yeah, whatever. If you can stand in the middle of presence, whether here, home, or whatever, wherever you are, and you just go, oh yeah, oh yeah. You've just become a millennial. No, no, I'm kidding. No, I think it was the Gen Xers that started that. No, I think it was the Gen Y. Boomers would never do it. And that's not true. But listen, just because we don't have to perform for God to show up doesn't mean we stand idle as spectators. Even when David was in sin, he said, I will come into your house. I will lift my hands. Why? Because the exercise of the will takes me out of the exercise of self-indulgence or pity or apathy. 
And what happens is this, just standing idle as spectators in the presence of God, that's when we begin to slip and treat His presence with contempt. It, it becomes negotiable. They say the average Christian gathers together in the assembly of God now about once every three to four weeks. Once every three to four weeks. Now, now I'm not saying this is church. I'm saying we're the church, but if we're never, never together, we're a very, very weakened church. That's why God said in Hebrews, already three decades into Christianity, God had to prophetically say to the church, don't give up meeting together as some are already in the habit of doing. They were finding it, we're under grace, it doesn't matter if we go or not, God's with us wherever we go. That's true, God's with us wherever we go, and just because we're not performing for God doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue God. Something's been lost in the pursuit of God in the name of grace. That's not right. And you know, with all the passion he could muster, Paul cried out, I want to know Christ. Here's a guy sitting in prison, he's, he's just given everything he could for following Christ, and he's saying, oh, there's so much more. And he goes on and says, not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's what presence does. Presence makes you hungry for more of presence, staggering in late and flippantly and not worshiping at home. Man, if I don't worship at home, I'm going, a a am I alive? Serious? If I only open my Bible when I'm here on Sunday, which I don't even have to do that now, it's on the screen, so I don't even open my Bible, am I alive? Am I hungry? <sighs> I told you something would bother me. While it's true, guys, that we carry the presence of God everywhere we go because He lives in us, listen to me, that doesn't mean we carry His presence upon us. There's a difference. Listen to me. There's a difference. The Holy Spirit didn't just come to live in them. He came upon them. The wording in the, in the Bible is a wording like donning a new coat. Well, what happens when I put on new clothes? You're going to notice because I haven't had it on before. When the Holy Spirit is put on me, people notice because they're not seeing me. They're seeing the Holy Spirit. And I can have him in me without having him on me. What's the difference? In me just means he's there. He is resident. On me means we together are making an impact in my world. That's the difference. And it, it, this is the paradox here. And I can't explain it, but neither am I going to write it off. And here's the paradox. I carry the presence of God. I pursue the presence of God. You know, that, that's a contradiction. That's an oxymoron. What, how do you pursue what you've already got? Oh, I've got it, but there's so much more to get. That's what Paul's saying. I want to know him. Paul, come on, man. You've known him now for decades. You preach the gospel of grace. Yeah, I know, but I want to know him. And I haven't already got this. Like he, he's got all of me, but I don't have all of him like he's got all of me. You know why that's so? Because he doesn't have all of you either, and he doesn't have all of me. There are areas that he needs to get a hold of. And listen, I'm only going to get as much presence upon me as I, I really want. It's like last week. Because His presence on me should cause me to be passionate for more of His presence on me. It, it, it's, it's that elusive thing. The more I get, the more I want. And I realize the less I have, so the more I want. Hmm. 
I like what Bill Johnson said. The responsibility for the measure of God's presence that we carry lies with us. We always have what we earnestly want. That's true. I mean, if you want something bad enough, you're going to chase after it, aren't you? I have been looking for these boots for nearly a year. And I've looked, they're, they're R.M. Williams, and they're for my 60th birthday. So I snuck them out this morning, because I'm not 60 yet. But they just happen to be in R.M. Williams as, a, as, a, as, what were they? They're kind of like this, I don't know, what do you call it? A special kind of make, and they're not going to make them again. I said to Janet, oh, look, there they are. I want those boots. She goes, oh, yeah, well, you can have them for your birthday in January. Yeah, all right. So she wasn't home this morning. I wanted them bad. I've been, I've been going in R.M. Williams shops all over and going online. Do you make these kind of boots? I want them that color. I want this kind of make. I want. No, we don't do it. And all of a sudden, they're there, and I pursued them, and I paid a big dollar for them because I had to have these boots. I wanted them. Do I pursue God that much? I get what I want. So do you. Here's the third thing that's bothering me a little bit. We, we, we've got this incredible revelation on sonship and identity. It's been amazing. But here's the deal. Our adoption into God's family should lift us to live higher, not like the prodigal who treated it with disrespect. Now, before you get your back up and cross your arms and go, no, I'm not disrespecting God, just wait a minute. We slip in this area when we take God's goodness for granted. Or we come with expectations and make demands of His goodness. You know, He said, ask and I'll give good gifts to my children. He didn't say demand. He said, ask. Asking to me is, Father, would you? Can I? You know, I didn't go to my, well, I didn't, wasn't my dad anyway, he wasn't around, but I didn't go to my mom when I was younger. I demand right now to have the keys to the car. I've got my license. Give me the keys, woman. I can tell you what that red-headed woman would have done. Mm-hmm. Right across the face. I got it more than once and deserved it. You know, today she'd go to jail for that. I should report her. Anyway, <laughs> but here's the deal. I think a false thinking has crept into some to believe that God's goodness is primarily for their convenience. And that the Father's here to make us comfortable. Hmm. I, I tell you, I was reading that book, The Barbarian Way, and, and if you don't want your faith to be scared and shaken, don't read it. Because he said, John the Baptist did an incredible thing. He gets imprisoned by Herod. He knows his life is near an end. So he gets a little bit doubtful, and he sends his followers to go chase up Jesus and say, are you really the one that we were waiting for? In other words, prove yourself. You know what Jesus did? I ain't proving myself. I got nothing to prove. You're my cousin. You ought to know better. And he said to the disciples of John, he didn't say, go back and show the point. He said, go back and tell him the blind are seen, the lame are walking, the dead are raised, the kingdom is moving with violence. And you know what? That's all he said. Now you'd think and here's the point that Erwin McManus makes in the book. You would think that being the cousin of John, knowing many's about to get executed, this is the God of all heaven, he can stop Herod from killing his cousin right then and there and go, look, I'll prove to you I'm God. I'm going to open, your, I'm gonna open 
your cell and you're going to be released and Herod will drop dead from trying to kill you. He didn't make one mention of that. He talked about everything needing to be fulfilled as they were for the kingdom of God, which included, here you go, this is, this is wild and out there, which included the death of John. Instead of feeling like he had to go rescue John, he said, John, you've got to play out your life. The time has come. And now your life is becoming a martyr for the kingdom, and that's God's will for you. And I'm not going to stop it. Because it's not about your comfort, and it's not even about your convenience in rescuing you. It's about a will of God that's far bigger than all of that. Now, here's the deal. Are you willing to live that? That takes away your convenience and your comfort? And I think there's a false thinking nowadays that the Father is here as my sugar daddy to give me everything I ask for because he's so good. In his goodness, he will say no. There are times as a good father to my two kids, I said no, out of my goodness, not out of my anger. There are times I said no out of anger. But there are times I knew it would be wrong to say yes for many reasons. And I'm not going to go through those with you. When I was in high school, I had a friend who, funny enough, was also named Keith. And no, this is not an allegory about me. Because Keith's dad, who was around, was an incredibly, incredibly gracious and generous father to all three of his children. I remember Keith's dad buying him a nice American V8 muscle car when he was 17. I mean, this thing was black. Now, hang on, early 70s, so don't tell me cheesy. It was black, it had the mags, it was jacked up at the back, and it had flames on the bonnet coming down the front panels. Loud mufflers and everything. Keith's dad not only bought the car, he paid for the rego, he paid for the insurance, he paid for the petrol, and just to make matters even better, gave Keith a credit card to get whatever he needed. What a dad. I'd have a dad like that, thank you, when I was 17. Who wouldn't? I can remember one night, four of us in Keith's car, this muscle car, um, moving along quite quickly. <laughs> Keith put his foot down because he knew we were coming to a, a juncture in a four-way road, four-way, you know, hoping the light was going to be green. And he hits because it humps, you know, it's, it's a hump. He hit that hump doing more than 160 kilometers an hour. We went airborne for I don't know how long, but it felt like ages. When the front of that car hit the road, sparks were flying everywhere. It's, it's a miracle we didn't get killed. Keith pulls over, looks at a few dents and scratches as a result, and laughs. Now, you'd think he'd be the forever grateful child and treat it like his little baby or his sweetheart. But instead, he just pulls it over and he just laughs because he says, that'll fix it. He always does. Now, I want to tell you something. The journey we've been on has the potential for this kind of thing to happen. That'll fix it. I know I've made some stupid choices, but that'll fix it. <laughs> and you go, I'd never do that. I'm not going to abuse the gifts that God's given to me. But I want to tell you something. You might not abuse them, but you might neglect them. Or you might minimize them. Or you might shelve them. And can I say to you... This too is disrespect for the Father's goodness. 
to ask for a gift and then shelve it, to ask for fire and let it go down to coals, that too is disrespect. And all of this, as we heard last week, is an issue of the heart, and we're responsible for stirring up passion in the heart. I want to put that verse up again from Proverbs. Guard your heart. Above all else, it it determines the course of your life. Can I suggest to you this morning, yes, it is a warning to keep us from slipping into sin, but it is also a warning about slipping into lukewarmness. You've got to guard your heart or it'll get lukewarm. I don't know about you, but I know about me. My heart is not wicked and deceitful above all things. That's Old Testament. I've been given a new heart, but that doesn't mean the heart is always on fire. That is my responsibility to fan that fire into flame or else I'm going to end up like the Christians at Laodicea. Do you realize Paul wrote to the Christians at Laodicea? You know what he said to them? Set your hearts on things above. Three decades later, John writes to them and he says, God is ready to spit you out of his mouth because you are lukewarm. Can I suggest to you, they let the fire go out. So I kind of want to take Paul's lead and address you like he did three churches in the New Testament. Number one, the strong church, Rome. He addressed them as a teacher. Number two, the rich church, Corinth. He addressed them as a father. Number three, the faithful church, Colossae. He addressed them as a prayer. I'm only going to, these last minutes, talk about the first one, the strong church. Rome, and how he addressed them as a teacher. Paul said something at the end of Romans that was just phenomenal. When you look at Romans 15, 14, I myself am convinced, my brothers. There's a couple of times in the New Testament Paul says, I'm confident, I'm convinced. Same word in the background. I know that I know that I know deep within me that you yourselves are filled with God's goodness. So he's he's not kind of smacking them about. He's saying, I know what's inside you. I know it's good. I know you are good. You are so complete in knowledge. Golly, guys, you've just got so much, and you are competent. You know what that word competent means in the background? Totally capable. In other words, you have the capacity. I, I think he's got faith in them. You are totally able to instruct one another. The word instruct is literally the word admonish, to provide instruction as to correct behavior and belief. You can do this to one another. I know you're strong. Here's the, here's the amazing thing. Paul hadn't even had a chance to visit Rome by the time he wrote Romans. He hadn't even been there yet. He's saying, I, I, I want to come see you guys. I've heard all about you. Your faith is just being heard about all over the known world, and I've got to come see this because you're such a strong church. And so what he does, he writes this compendium of theology called Romans. I know you're strong, so I'm going to give you the best foundation you will ever get because you have started well. I want you to go well. I want you to finish well. So he writes the greatest theological kind of composition in the whole of the New Testament all the way up through to the end of chapter 11. Then chapter 12 comes. Total switch. Bang! But before he switches, can I say this to you? Victory, you are and have been a strong church. 
And you have been strengthened for so many years in this area. It's a hallmark of our church. We've got a solid foundation. We are good in teaching. I thank God for your strength in this foundation and in your knowledge and your abilities and everything. And like Paul, I'm convinced you are totally capable of leading and instructing each other in such a way to make each other to be amazing people. I'm convinced of that. But can I say this to you? Teaching alone doesn't light the fire. And Paul knew that. That's why right at the end of chapter 11 into chapter 12, he makes an amazing shift. He goes away from deep teaching. And you know what he does? He says, you've got to light the fire. You know, the church is supposed to be a people of fire. Listen, we were born in fire. The Holy Spirit, the church was born in fire. We're baptized in fire. But that fire must be fed. It has to be kept alive. And, and just getting more and more teaching doesn't do that. All it does is get more knowledge. And Paul knew that something needed to take place. And the truth was that good teaching should lead to more knowledge. But in chapter 12, Paul exhorts them to stoke the fire with sacrifice. Doesn't he? Probably one of the hallmark verses in the Bible. I know I said that about Romans 8, 1, but this is just as equally powerful in the whole of Scripture as Romans 12, 1. I don't know what English version you read it in. Some versions start with therefore. Some versions start with I'm asking, I'm begging you to do this. In the original language, it actually begins with, hey, I'm begging you. He's actually gone from this amazing 11 chapters of teaching. Now he starts pouring out his heart. I'm begging you. Man, I'm doing that to you, church. I can't teach you any, I can't teach you any more new stuff. There, Solomon said it, Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun anyway. You know there's no new sermons. There's just new ways of putting it to entertain you. That's true. Some do it with props. Some do it with exposition. Some do it by dancing on the stage. I don't know. But it's not new. But with everything that's within me, I'm, I'm urging you. I'm pleading with you earnestly. This is strong language found at the beginning of this whole section. He knows this is a heart issue. And if you don't get it in the heart, I can never make it happen. But I am begging you, therefore, because of the mercies, the compassion of God. Listen, the motivation for this isn't so we can get busy and we can work our freckle off and we can go back to the old wine and the old ways. And it's not because of that. It's all because of the great compassion of God for you. He's loved you so much, but it's not just for you. I'm begging you because of the mercies of God that you become the living sacrifice that will make the fire keep burning bright. He's not asking you to die. He's asking you to live. This is different than the Old Testament. <laughs> Cut the throat, bleed the thing out, throw the whole body on the altar. By the way, he is using that picture, but it's not a dead sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. But you know, when they, when they kill the animal, they put the whole thing on the altar. Why? Because the body represented the whole thing. And Paul is saying, I'm begging you that you give your whole self to God in a living, sacrificial way. There's no other way to do this because it's holy, it's acceptable, and it is only logical. It's your reasonable service. How can you hold back? Because our life as an offering keeps the fire burning strong. And this is not a once-off thing, people. You go, oh, yeah, I did that about 10 years ago. Right? When's the last time you stoked the fire with your life? This is not a once-off thing. Not for me, not for you, not for anybody. 
give ourselves. You know, it's one of, unreserved, it's one of the greatest, if not the greatest way to live revival. All of this is about revival. And the reverse is just as true, though. A life of little or no sacrifice is a way to put the fire out. I'm just saying. And as the main teaching pastor of victory, I am concerned. Because what I see nowadays is a calculated sacrifice. Yeah, I'll give a little bit. God might can have that. But I'm holding myself back. It's as if some have allowed the journey of grace to lull them into complacency and convenience. Your Christianity has become something you have added when it's convenient. And Bill Johnson said in his book, Hosting the Presence, convenience and sacrifice cannot coexist. And if we really want to be a church that has the presence of God upon us in powerful ways and we're serious about influencing a city and beyond for the kingdom we've got to regain the passion that once burned in our hearts I'm telling you it is not there like it used to be don't don't try to fool me don't try to lie to me and say yes it is Keith you can't see my heart no I don't see your heart but I see evidence or lack thereof in all of us I don't see a church on fire I see a church just kind of smoothly rolling along just saying there's a lot of things I'm just saying today and I put myself in there too I've got to do this as much as you the new wine of the spirit is supposed to be an accelerant to the fire not a dampening of the fire our security in him should excite us into seeking and serving him not lulling us into apathy and inactivity and this fire will burn fiercely again when we give ourselves passionately as a living sacrifice so if you want the fire, don't talk about, yeah, it'd be great to see our city saved. Oh, our nation needs God so much. We need God. Revival begins in the house of God. This is a call back to our first love. We need to deal with areas in our lives that have become lukewarm. We need to fan the fire again. And I'm urging you, I'm urging me to give our whole lives as a living sacrifice and let it begin right here, right now. Come on, just stand to your feet for a minute. I could preach this a thousand times and it not make any difference unless our hearts are engaged. And I can't do that for you. Like, I can't move the Holy Spirit but I can promise you this, he wants to move. And I can't open your heart, but I can open mine. And I can't fan your coals into a flame, but I can exhort you to, and I can do that to mine. I can't present you as a living sacrifice to God, but I can present me. But I can ask you to do the same like Paul did. And I'm saying, church, if we're going to become everything, look, we get all the wonderful prophecies and we get all the declarations but all of that does not happen without living sacrifice and passion so I'm asking you here today I'm recalling you again here today to that first love you know I love Jesus I know you do I told you earlier you're, you're a strong church I'm convinced that you're able to do this but I'm concerned 
I'm not angry, I'm concerned, I'm grieved a bit because this revelation for us should have transformed us to be greater, not less. So I'm going to do this. This is all. This is not a ministry time to individuals. This is not about your weakness. This is not about your struggles. This is not about your anxiety that was dealt with earlier and done well. This is about your heart, my heart. And just for a few minutes as we sing before we close this service, I want to make an altar all over this building. Either where you sit or down here the front, let's fill this place up. Could we just come before God again and present our lives as a living? I'm like Paul. I'm begging you. I'm earnestly pleading with you today by God's mercy and compassion for you and for this city. Would you present your life an acceptable sacrifice that's only reasonable here today in Jesus' name? Come on, as they sing. Either come and make this your altar down here today or where you're at, just kneel down. Come on, open your heart again. Thanks for joining us for the C3 Victory Podcast. We would love to see you at one of our services. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au or check us out on Facebook or Instagram.